the Classic Comics Forum podcast presents issue number 35, Sandman Mystery Theater, part one. to the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris-King, and today I'm so excited to bring you the first part of a three-part discussion about the Vertigo series Sandman Mystery Theater. Now, Sandman Mystery Theater ran for 70 issues, plus a couple specials, beginning in the early 90s, and remains not just one of the best books of the 90s, but my personal favorite mainstream comic book title of all time. I love everything about Sam and Mystery Theater, uh, particularly the great writing by Matt Wagner and Steven Siegel, as well as the awesome art by Guy Davis. Uh, and I'm joined today by a special guest, Slam Bradley. Slam and I have been um, planning on doing this uh, podcast discussion for over three years now, so I was really excited to finally get a chance to sit down with Slam and talk about this comic that is a mutual favorite of ours. Um, so we're going to start off, as always, uh, with a conversation where we get to know Slam Bradley, and then once that conversation is done, we're going to jump right into a discussion of Sam and Mystery Theater. So strap in, buckle up, whatever other metaphors you want, just get ready, because this is one that's been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Sandman Mystery Theater, Part 1. Uh, what was the first comic that you ever read? I don't know. I, I don't remember. I, I know the first comic that I bought, um, but I've got two older brothers and an older sister. There were always comics at the house somewhere, um, mostly gold key, funny animal types and Archie type comics. But uh, so I don't I don't honestly remember what the very first comic I I read was because they were always there. Um, I do I know the comic first comic that I bought that was uh, Detective Comics number 454. Okay. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to me when I hear people say that because it was very different for me. I, you know, we had comic strips in the newspaper and stuff, but I guess growing up in sort of a religious atmosphere, I didn't, I, nobody I knew had any comic books. I just, uh, so when I found one at a, at a convenience store, it was like a whole new thing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, all right, so other than Sam and Mystery Theater here that you may have reread for this podcast, what was the most recent comic that you've read? I have uh, actually been rereading um, 100 Bullets. I'm about almost two-thirds of the way through a, a re Well, so, somewhat of a reread and somewhat of a first read. I, I read the first couple of story arcs a long time ago, and it didn't quite work for me. Uh, and I decided, having been on a binge of uh, crime comics, that I would give it another try. It's working a lot better for me this time around. So the most recent comic that I read was uh, 100 Bullets number 64. That's a series that uh, I see, I've heard good things about it, and I see it a lot in like uh, dollar bins. And there'll be long runs, and it's kind of tempting because I like getting long runs. In fact, that's how I started on Sam and Mystery Theater. I got the first 29 issues, I think, for 10 cents each at a, at a sale at a, at a, a convention or at a store. And then I read them, and uh, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, it's my favorite series of all time. Um, so I see these 100 bullets, and they have fantastic covers. These great, great covers, great covers by like, John. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but this may sound funny given we're going to be talking about Sam and Mystery Theater. I, I don't actually, I don't really like true crime stuff, or the, like gritty crime. I don't, uh, the violent crime stuff, I tend to, doesn't really sit that well with me, which I, it sounds weird even saying it because I also have a complete run of boy comics from Lev Gleason, and that's all basically true crime, you know, hyper violence as well. But, um, yeah, that's what kept me from reading 100 Bullets. I, I am uh, 
because of my day job, I'm generally not allowed by my family to watch uh, crime or or lawyer shows because I pick them apart and I'm really pretty pretty unreasonable to be with when they're on. And it's kind of an MST3K sort of situation. Uh, but I really love uh, old time film noir and uh, old time uh, written noir, uh, hard-boiled detective comic or books, uh, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, and then early paperback originals, Jim Thompson and that sort of thing. So um, it's easier to deal with the older stuff because you it's easier, I think, to set aside what they get wrong about police actions or law law or whatnot. But and there have been times with a hundred bullets when gosh, they get things really wrong. Um, <laughs> but uh, overall I'm I'm a pretty big fan of uh, of that genre. Everybody's got their uh, things that they I think that that uh, they're like super it's like a sticking point. There's like that sort of thing. I don't know anything about it. So if I see if something's wrong, I won't even notice. But there's other specific things. I, I'm thinking of my brother. He is a really big um, fan of uh, the U.S. highway system. And so if we're if we're watching something and someone messes up like the route sign, like if they're on a highway and they have the signs the, like from the wrong period or the wrong thing, and some of that's bled over to me. I'll, I'll be short with this because it's a total digression, but there was this movie night and day with like uh, Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise that was supposed to be is set in Boston. And in the trailer, there's a part where Cameron Diaz, who's supposed to be this Boston lawyer says to him, like, quick, take the 93. And it just, I would never see that movie. Cause you don't say the 93 here. It's I 93 or just 93 it's not the 93 that's that's only like a southern california thing so i uh, just yeah whenever it, it's can be infuriating where i'll be watching something like really into an intense scene and my brother will be like ah oh, that root sign you know that's like a 1965 sign and this movie's supposed to be in the 40s okay. um anyway so um who's a comic book character that you love this is actually really, it's a hard question. Up until probably 20 years ago, the answer would be Batman. Um, Batman is what got me started. I, I um, as a, just a little bitty guy, um, my, my brothers and my sister are much older than me. So I, I hung out at home with mom um, when I was little, um, was, somewhat of an only child and uh, they had reruns of of batman what's called now called batman 66 the batman tv show and it was because of that and being a fan of that that i when i first bought my comics the first three comics that i bought had batman on the cover um but i don't think the character's been used very well for a long time um and frankly my reading and my comics reading has been an evolutionary process and I don't, characters don't matter to me much anymore. Um, the character's only as good as the creators who are working on it. When you say Batman, what do you mean? Do you mean that, you know, do you mean the guy who's uh, got little ears and is fighting aliens? Do you mean, uh, Neil Adams as Batman? Do you mean the 19, early 1940s who was throwing guys off of buildings and carried a gun in that one story? Do you mean that when you get characters that are 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, they've gone through so many permutations that it's hard to uh, get a feel for what they mean anymore. Um, actually, one of my favorite characters we're going to be talking about um, in this uh, from from Sandman Mystery Theater, and that's Diane Belmont, who I think is possibly one of the best written and uh, best realized characters that we've seen in comics. Well, I totally agree, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, 
I think I'm going to make a case right at the start that that Diane is the main character of the series. It's not Sandman. It's not West Dodds. Uh, I think the series is really about Diane, uh, and she's fantastic. But to your point, um, you know, different. She's been treated differently by different writers through the years. Uh, we were just talking on the sure. forums a little while ago about how. Um, in the uh, in the 80s, early 80s, Roy Thomas was trying to paper over some JSA continuity thing from like 1950 that no one else cared about. And in order to um, pl plug this inconsequential hole, he wrote a story where Diane Belmont got killed because for him, it was the only way it made sense. And um, we, we don't need to talk about Roy Thomas, but, you know, I have the Sandman archives with his first stories from uh, Adventure Comics and um, Diane's in that series, and she's fairly different at the beginning. You can see how, how the story's inspired the way she's treated in this run, but it's definitely a different, written very differently and handled very differently. Yeah, I've not read any of those very early Sandman comics. I I uh, never have tracked down that uh, archive, and I I find my patience for Golden Age comics is is pretty low at this point, um, for the most part. With with exceptions, Barks, Ducks, and uh, um, Will Eisner's work certainly are exceptions. But uh, yeah, I that I remember those. Uh, I remember that story. I think it was from All Star Squadron which is a comic I loved um, when it was coming out because I was a huge JSA fan and I find it almost unreadable at this point um, just because my tastes have changed so much. But uh, yeah, I don't, Roy had a, without speaking ill of Mr. Thomas, whose work entertained me for years, had a habit of fixing things that didn't need to be fixed. Yeah. So uh, this question may be redundant because we just talked about how you, you don't really care about characters. But the, the other half of this question is, is there a certain character that you really dislike or? That one's actually much easier because, and, I, and I'm somewhat famous on the Classic Comics Forum for this. Um, I've long said that not even Alan Moore, who I think is arguably the greatest comic writer of all time, not even Alan Moore can make Superman interesting. Um, and I say that with a caveat because I actually really like probably the first year's worth of uh, Superman stories by Siegel and Schuster. But that, again, we're going back to how characters evolve and change based upon both times and who's writing or drawing them, because that's an entirely different character than what we had in um, the Silver or Bronze Age Superman. That's That early Superman was um, a very progressive um, man of the people, really, uh, out fighting arms dealers and wife beaters and uh, um, sleazy mine executives and whatnot, and uh, really completely different than the dude who later on had 47 sub or supporting characters whose initials were LL and juggling planets and flying through time and doing all that kind of crazy stuff. So with the caveat that I really like those very early Superman stories, Superman has never done anything for me. And even Alan Moore couldn't make him work for me. I sympathize. Um... I like the character despite how bad a lot of his stories are, um, which I, I guess I would say is a testament to Siegel and Schuster. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Lois Lane, um, but you know, as some people I've talked about before, I at one point put together a complete run of all Bronze Age Superman books from the sort of um, new look Superman in 1970 where they depowered him. Yeah. I got from there to crisis in 86, I had a complete run of every Superman title. So world's finest action, Superman, DC comics presents like Superman family, all of them. And I tried to read them in month by month to replicate the experience of what it would be like. And what it was like was 
a lot of incredibly crappy stories. Uh, the Lois Lane and, and Jimmy Olsen were actually the most interesting stories because um, they could get weird. Uh, Did that include the curvy run on uh, yeah. Jimmy Olsen? Yeah. yeah. And um, I got up to January of 1977 and then I sold all of them <laughs> except for the Lois Lane <laughs> because they were just so bad. They're so bad. Uh, Superman's a character that's really hard to write well. So even though I, I like, I like the the character. I like Clark Kent. I like the dynamics. I like the, the heart of the character. It's really hard to have any good stories with him. So, uh, okay. So, um, who's a creator that you think is underrated? Don Newton, and and there's a few reasons for that. Um, Don Newton was actually integral in one of my first evolutions um, in reading comics because up until I discovered Don Newton, um, I followed characters, mostly Batman, especially. Um, I was a big Spider-Man fan. Um, so that was, uh, that was a large part of what I was doing. Um, I discovered I used to spend summers with my grandparents, um, with my uh, who lived in a small town on the Idaho-Oregon border. And you know, grandparents are are wonderful and lovely people, but uh, they can get kind of boring. Uh, so I would, uh, I remember one day they lived about maybe a mile as the road went, but a shorter period, a shorter distance if you cut through the apple orchard which we were not supposed to do but we did anyway and i went to the circle k and there on the comic rack um was this cover that just blew me away uh the phantom with a sword and flintlock pistols and the american flag painted cover in the background the phantom number 74 and i bought that as the only charlton comic i ever bought off the rack and I went home and or back to my grandparents' house and devoured that comic. Uh, Don Newton wrote it. Don Newton did the full art. Uh, I think he lettered it, uh, painted cover, and it stuck with me. And that was about the time I think that he left Charlton and went to work, started working for um, DC. So I followed him and I bought most of most of the books that Don Newton did until his untimely death. I think he was 49 when he died. Um, so all of his work on Batman, uh, the Shazam feature that uh, the last few issues of that comic. And then I think it went on to World's Finest. And uh, I don't think I ever bought, I don't think I bought at the time his uh, New Gods book, but I did pick that up later. Um, Newton wasn't flashy. You could almost say that he was a Neil Adams clone, but I think he was one of the best storytellers uh, from the time period. And there was just something about his work that uh, really, really grabbed me. Uh, I think he's been largely forgotten since then. He was somewhat popular, I think, in the late 70s and, and early 80s. I remember uh, his work would be noted in like the Overstreet Price Guide as, as an artist that people would collect, but I think he's been largely forgotten since then. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't, Newton. Don Newton is, uh, I'm not that familiar with his work because those titles and those characters are ones that I don't really collect. I did have that complete run of World's Finest, but I hadn't gotten up to that part of my reading when I sold them all off. So I haven't read like very much of his stuff, but I do have that issue of Phantom because that cover is like an all-time classic. I It's just a, a gorgeous cover. Yeah, I have a, a really high-grade copy that I got for $9 at a convention, and I was like, <laughs> you guys, not the dealer's fault, but society at large is undervaluing how awesome some of this stuff is that he did. I still have my original copy somewhere in, in one of my many boxes. 
so who's a creator that you think is overrated? I mean, you could go with all of the, the usual suspects, but I don't want to pile on. Um, Do it, pile on. <laughs> Especially if you're right. about to say John Byrne, but no, go ahead. Uh, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> There's a lot of things I like about John Byrne. Um, I think I don't think he's done anything in, remotely interesting in. Thirty years, maybe, but. Uh, he did the only the only intercompany crossover that I actually like, which is the Batman Captain America book. Um, I have no use and never had any use for any of the image founders. Um, I was not, uh, I don't think I, I probably was actually the target audience for those books, but I wasn't interested in, at the, in them at the time and they haven't grown on me. I, what I would say probably is somebody who I used to love and who I cannot read anymore um, is Don McGregor, um, who was a fairly big writer in the 70s um did war of the winter world's kill raven um black panther what a lot of people think is the seminal run on black panther uh early adopter of the graphic novel with saver and uh did uh a book that or a couple of books that i absolutely adored um nathaniel dusk that he did with gene colon um and again this goes to my detective and uh, and uh, crime love. I have not read those books recently. And the reason that I have not read Nathaniel Dusk recently is because I pulled Saber out and I got about six pages in and I could not read it. It is utterly unreadable to me, just walls of text. And uh, I thought, maybe it's just that book. So I pulled out Detectives Inc, which um, McGregor did with Marshall Rogers. And again, I, I could not read it. Um, the prose is fighting against the art. Uh, when you've got artists like Galassi and when you've got artists like Marshall Rogers, let them show the audience what the heck there is going on. You don't need to tell what the, uh, what the art is saying. Um, so I find McGregor absolutely unreadable at this point. And that's why I won't go back and read Nathaniel Dusk because I loved those books and I fear that I will hate them if I try to read them again. And McGregor, you know, he, he does have the reputation of being one of the wordiest writers in comics history. I have, a, most of his work was a little before my time because I started reading 84. And so, um, I do have a trade paperback collecting all of his Black Panther work, and I and I haven't read it. I, I opened it up a couple times. I've read Saber. Um, it's been a while, and I have a soft spot for it because one of my favorite subgenres in fiction, but particularly in comics, are uh, in the '70s. There was a, a whole slew of stories dealing with dystopian amusement parks, and I just I love dystopian amusement park stories. And the saber, the it's set in this uh, dystopian version of Disney World, and so um, I love it for that reason. But I haven't I haven't read it in 20 years. So yeah, I tried and I couldn't do it. I, I and I I think it's again I. I've had similar issues with uh, trying to reread Claremont. Um, my middle son is um, a pretty big Claremont uh, X-Men fan and I've kind of tried to go back and reread it. I find not just the wordiness, but the, the weird ticks that he has, um, that the repetitive little things that he does, the Boji Moy and uh, um, the best that what he uh, does and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, bother me. Um, there's a lot of Bronze Age work that I have a hard time reading now. And that's what I grew up with. I started buying comics in 1975. Um, so I'm a half a generation ahead of you, I guess. But uh, um, they just, uh, there's there's just, just too much text there. Yeah. 
All right. So, uh, whoops, I dropped my, dropped my questions. Um, two more questions and then we'll get to the Sam and mystery theater. Uh, if you were stranded on a desert Island, but you could bring one comic with you, whether it's an individual issue or a, or a whole run or whatever, whatever you wanted to find as a comic, what would you bring with you to read? Sandman Mystery Theater would be would be very close to being my answer, but it's not. The answer would be would actually be Sandman itself, um, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which is my favorite comic of all time, and and is probably my for personal choice for for the greatest comic that's ever been done. Um, I bought the first issue. Um, I think. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure if I remember, if I remember when it came out right, would have been in 1989. So I was in college. Um, I wasn't buying a lot of comics, but it was the first, when I went to college was, was when I first had access to a comic book shop so I could get things besides what were on the newsstands. Um, and it's just, that book blew me away from the beginning, but when you get to number eight um, and he introduces uh, death and um, that, that issue is possibly my favorite comic of all time, single issue. Um, I can reread that every year and I find new things in it. I have to admit, I still haven't read Sandman. It was coming out when I was, I was reading comics. Um, and I was in high school when it started. It was, and all through college, Sandman was the big thing that everyone was reading in college because I was in college from 92 to 96. And I met Neil Gaiman at a, at a store during that period and had him sign my Death, The High Cost of Living, number one. I read that miniseries, but I never actually read the original Sandman stories. And um, I should probably do that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we'll, be talk, <laughs> we'll be talking a little bit about Sandman when we start talking about in a minute about Sandman Mystery Theater because the two the two series are more closely connected than I think some people realize. Um, and finally, if you could have one dream book, so you could create a book and you could put any creators on it, living or dead, any characters, any series, anything you want, what would be your dream comic? I, I would love, and I don't know if I could actually do it. I, I would love to uh, to write the Crimson Avenger um, during that same period as Sandman Mystery Theater. Um, I think rather than the uh, again, you could, I would I would I think it would go with. Uh, pulling because there's so much happening in that late 30s, early 40s period that you can pull from uh, from the headlines with a crime noir. Um, that's always been the, my dream book to write. Um, and, you know, if I could get Don Newton to uh, to draw it, that would be that would be perfection. Well, sounds great. And we'll be talking a little bit about Crimson Avenger here because he does show up in Sam and Mystery Theater. Um, so Sam and Mystery Theater, let's let's jump into a little bit of background for Sandman for people that aren't familiar. Uh, first appeared back in 1940 in the Golden Age, was a member of the Justice Society. Disappeared from comics for a long time, um, reappeared as part of the Justice Society in the crossovers with the JLA, um, but didn't really have much of a, of a presence really in comics. Um, this started to change just a little bit with Crisis because post-Crisis DC, new continuity, they had Superman had moved, you know, so he was in the present day. So they had to rejigger their continuity. And in the new post-Crisis continuity, Sandman is considered the first superhero in the DC universe. And that becomes a major part of Sandman Mystery Theater. Um, Fast forward to 1989, Sandman comes out, and in, I believe in the first issue, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, there's a sequence where Sandman has been, he's been captured and he's dreaming for a long, long time, uh, centuries or decades or what have you. Sandman is, is captured and uh, becomes... 
because he's captured, um, things go wrong in the dreaming. And so the dreaming, which is the area that Sandman, obviously, Morpheus is in charge of, um, has to try and find ways to fix itself. And one of the ways it tries to fix itself is inspiring Wes Dodd to become the Sandman. Yeah. So there's a brief cameo with Wes Dodd in Sandman. Fast forward another couple years, three or four years later, and we get the debut of Sandman Mystery Theater, which jumps off of that. So one of the things that happens throughout the series is in each arc, and we'll talk about the structure in a minute because it's really important to the series, but in each arc, um, Wesley Dodd, it starts with him having a dream that's inspired, that comes from Morpheus in the dreaming, and it clues him in on some sort of, usually a serial killer, but some sort of murder mystery that's going on or is about to go on. And he is haunted by these nightmares, and, and, and so he has to go out and solve these crimes to get that the dreams to stop. And so this element, uh, there's a more direct crossover that happens later on and a special we'll talk about when we get to it. But this element from Sandman um, informs each arc in the series throughout the whole run. West Dodds is always being driven by these, these nightmares, um, which sort of kick off the action and then are interspersed throughout each arc uh, as sort of um, thematic uh, dream sequences that, that inform the story and, and, and the reader while also sort of informing Wesley in a strange way as he tries to interpret what they mean. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the, the format um, is important. Um, but yeah, that's, that's essentially where it comes from now. This was one of the, the very first uh, Vertigo books. Um, DC had been doing sophisticated suspense, which turned into adult, uh, recommended for adult books. Um, the sophisticated suspense tagline, I think, started with Swamp Thing. Um, but DC was doing Sandman. Um, Animal Man, which had started with Grant Morrison, and Morrison was gone by the time um, Vertigo started. Um, Doom Patrol, I remember, I think Morrison was still on Doom Patrol when Vertigo started, but the, the Vertigo sub subprint um, was uh, launched to do the these adult comics. And uh, as I recall, Death, The High Cost of Living was the first mini-series uh, and it came out in the initial month, the initial Vertigo month. And I think that Sandman Mystery Theater was came out in the second month of Vertigo. Yeah, Vertigo had put out this uh, like a free like preview comic that had teasers for their first several titles. And I yes. believe that Sandman Mystery Theater was among the first ones. Um, before they officially launched the line, these were informally known as like the Burger line because Karen Berger was the editor on all of these books. And uh, we could do a whole podcast about, about her and Vertigo because it's so influential. But um, the important part here is she brings in, I don't know, I, I wasn't able to really find a lot of information about how the series came about, but Matt Wagner comes in to write the series. He ends up leaving the series right towards the end, but he writes, or at least plots, um, co-writes most of the whole series. And in the first arc, he brings with him the person who's going to be sort of the regular artist, even though he doesn't do every arc, which is Guy Davis. And uh, now Guy Davis, after this sort of went on to become one of the regular artists for the Hellboy line. And so I think he's probably best known for that. Um, he has a, a very distinctive style and um to me it's it's very much not your typical superhero uh, stuff at all it's 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 hard to even for me to even describe what it is it's got a 
you know, the series is set, uh, we should say, in the late 30s. And um, his art style, though, to me, almost feels like it's hearkening back to um, sort of uh, almost like an Art Nouveau sort of sketchiness. If you look at some of the yeah. line work on some of those posters from like the 1890s and around 1900, uh, it's got that sort of line work. It's it's fantastic. As a writer, whenever I'm working on a comic, I always think to myself, I always imagine um, when I'm like planning things out that Guy Davis is going to be the person drawing it, which is a real problem because a lot of times I'm the one drawing it and I can't draw anything like Guy Davis. But in my head, Guy Davis is my dream artist for everything I write. Um, Guy Davis, the, the feel is, uh, certainly fits in with the 30s. Uh, the feel I get from Davis's work is um, a lot of the spot elos that you would get from pulp magazines um, of the time period. Um, and I'm not really an art guy, so I don't know uh, stylistically, uh, or period. I, I do read a lot of pulps, and I've, I have collected pulps in the past, and, and Davis's aesthetic certainly fits in with those, those illustrations that were in the pulps. Davis, um, I didn't know him at the time that Sandman Mystery Theater came out, uh, came out of, I think, the black and white independent um, genre. I don't know if he had done the marquee at, at that point, but he, he had done Baker Street, which I had not read, but I went back and read letter later, which was a very new wave kind of uh, black and white comic by I think Caliber. Um, interesting stuff. I like the marquee a lot. Hellboy is kind of one of my blind spots. It's one of those books I need to to read because I've only read probably the first couple of arcs uh, that Magnola did. And uh, it's kind of daunting. There's an awful lot of books there. Yeah, there is. Now, of course, Matt Wagner is, was best known at this time. He's done, he's done a bunch of different things um, and done some fairly extensive work at this point for like the big companies but before that in the mid 80s he was really known for his series mage which he both wrote and drew and which still has not been completed because it was there's there's the supposed to be three self-contained series and the third one last i heard he was he had announced about five years ago now that it, that he was working on it and it was going to come out, but it's been over 30 years now, I think, since the last Mage came out. Um, it's a, you know, popular, influential series from the 80s, but, um, and it's cool. But for me, like, this is, this is his best, his best writing. Um, he brings in an interesting, some interesting structural stuff. So uh, I'm going to geek out a little bit about the structure of the series. And I'm really going to geek out when we get to the last arc, because uh, it's my favorite ending in all the comics for any series. I just absolutely love it. Because for me, as a writer, there's nothing that gets me more excited than when the structure of the story is actually part of the story. And so the way he has the series structured is there's every arc is four issues and um they're each four hmm? i'm pretty sure it's four but oh wait you're right nope you're right never mind that's all right um so every arc is four issues that and so each arc is a self-contained case uh there's a um, not even sure what the correct word is, but I'm going to just fall back on my, my movie music training. There's this contrapuntal is this thing they do in movies where you'll have a scene playing out and then the music is, is a counterpoint to it. It's not, so it's running sort of against it. What he does here is he has a narrator. So you'll have the action going on screen and then there'll be narrations that are excerpts from diaries basically that are being written either by Wesley or by Diane and so the narrator of each arc alternates so we'll have like the first arc Wes is the narrator the second arc Diane is the narrator and a lot of times those those caption boxes aren't them really discussing the K 
case. So it's not them like saying, you know, thinking about what's happening in the sequences. Mm-hmm. It's um, a look at sort of their inner personal life. But a lot of times what they're writing about uh, it thematically um, ties in with whatever the, the, the theme of that arc is and what the case is. And so you, you're getting a story on two different levels. You're getting the plot. You can just read the story for what it is. But that adds this second level of um, a sort of metaphorical level that's also a character level. And um, I just, it's great. I love it so much. Like to me, uh, you know, you talked about Alan Moore earlier. And uh, I agree in general, he's probably the best comics writer that we've had but this is about the best written series i think i've ever read the writing the structure the everything about the writing is just so excellent in this series that i, I just love it and it, to me it all starts with all this great structural the way he's set the series up to be written allows it to be written in a great way yeah it does you would think that with the structure the way it was it would be rigid and it doesn't feel that way um you're right it was four issue arcs i i was uh, but uh, the other thing that the the narration does i think is gives um uh, us a lot of insight into the inner voice of of both wes and diane uh, and allows them to grow as characters outside of uh, outside of the narrative of, of the actual story itself. So we get to see what their thoughts are uh, in a maybe less organic way, but uh, um, it, it allows for for a lot a lot deeper characterization, which again is may go to why uh, Diane Belmont is in fact one of my favorite characters of all time. Yes, and as I teased earlier, so since we're getting this through your course, it's Sandman Mystery Theater. The main character nominally is Wesley Dodds, the Sandman. And uh, he's he shows up in this first arc. It's it's a murder mystery. A lot of these I'm not gonna necessarily get into what the the case is about unless you have something to say which i know you do in some cases um they're investigating the mystery we get introduced um to sandman when uh he he breaks into so diane her her father is is a judge uh, and um i think i got that wrong her father the district attorney her father's a district attorney and uh wesley as sandman breaks into his house in the, in the first issue to get some documents and so that's where we get introduced. We get introduced, I think this is important, to Sandman through Diane's eyes. So she's seeing him for the first time. In this story, she also meets Wesley for the first time. It's implied that they had met a long time ago when they were very young, but reintroduced to him as an adult. And so we're, we're seeing Wesley through her eyes at the beginning. We're seeing Sandman through her eyes. And that is basically what we're going to have through almost the whole series is uh, we alternate the, the, the sort of narration caption boxes. And so we get a lot of stuff that he's writing from his point of view. We also, he's the, supposed to be the main character. The plot mostly revolves around him, but Diane's point of view is the most important point of view. And to me, Diane is the main character. She's the character who's, character arc we're following from issue one to issue 70 at the end i i think that's fair um i think one of the things that's that's interesting and and this may be a function of uh of guy davis's art or it could potentially be a function i you know i'm obviously i i don't know how he and wagner work together but both um, Wes and Diane are not the stereotypical comic book um, hero slash heroines. Um, Wes is, he's not a superhero type. He's a little bit dumpy. Um, he wears glasses. He doesn't see well without them. Um, you know, he's 
he has taken over his father's business, whatever the heck that business is. And I, I never, to me, is terribly clear. But he's not, uh, he's not the Bruce Wayne um, uh, type of, uh, of uh, superhero. Um, the, later on, when, when he actually wears uh, what would become the, the infamous purple and yellow Santa Man costume. He he looks dumpy. Um, and Diane is uh, not conventionally attractive. I think she's quite attractive, but she's not conventionally attractive. She's she's a little hippie. Um, you know, a little. They they look like real people, which is is I think interesting and, and adds an element to the to the story that's uh, important. Um, the book looks and feels very 19 late 1930s and and the vibe is very much there yes i agree um uh i'm trying not to get too ahead of myself but uh <laughs> we're gonna learn we're gonna see a lot more about wes in the specific story arc later i have a whole theory i'm gonna drop on you when we get to this arc <laughs> around issue 28 um about the series as a whole um but yeah, we we when we first meet Wes here, it's through Diane's eyes. She doesn't know anything about him, and so he's a little bit of a mysterious figure. We find out that he's just he grew up uh, in China because his father was over there for a while, like in the twenties, and so he he's very unlike the other sort of people in the social class that they're dealing with. He doesn't drink. Um, he, you know, has a different set of values. And so she's intrigued by this. And then, you know, she also sees Sandman, who's this mysterious, you know, vigilante. And it's all, um, when we first get introduced to Wes, there's a, there's sort of an air of, of intrigue and mystery about him because we're seeing him from her point of view as someone new. And as we get to learn more and more about him, we find out that he's not he has the trappings of Bruce Wayne because he did have this sort of training, you know, we see him, his training is more just like meditation, but, you know, he, he's familiar with these Eastern ideas and he has the mansion. He's got the Butler. He's got like the bat cave, which is basically just a garage. It's just, a, it's just like a garage. Cause his house happens to be like built on a hillside or whatever um, with the car in it. But he's got all the trappings, but he he's very different. He just he he's not at all um, as as it turns out uh, this uh, Bruce Wayne sort of Batman type superhero. One thing that happened we established right at the beginning, which I think is really important. When we meet Diane, we we learn pretty quickly that she's sort of. Um, she's sort of at loose ends. So she's, she's gone to college. She's an educated woman um, who's very smart, but she's functioning in a society that has no place for educated women who are very smart. And so she spends her time going to clubs with her friends and just, uh, you know, having a good time and wasting her life because she, doesn't know what she can do with it given the restrictions placed on her by society. This is one of the main themes in the series. When I was doing a close read um, for the podcast, it really jumped out to me that one of the main things that this series is about is about um, women's place in society and how women like Diane, as we'll see over the course of the series, are forced to f carve out their own place in society. And by doing that, many individuals doing it slowly change things, create a space for them. And we're gonna see a lot of stories where other marginalized characters are forced to do the same. A lot of times through criminal activity and, and violent means because they don't have any any real way in in polite society to actually get anywhere well and i think there's uh that's a, a large part of the character growth for diane um because at first it doesn't she's kind of a free spirit she's 
she's going to the Harlem clubs where her dad doesn't want her to go um, hanging out with these um, other college friends that uh, frankly will eventually get themselves and her into trouble. Um, and I think that the one thing I will say about Larry Belmont, her father, is he, he does want her to actually do something other than, you know, just be the normal, um, get married and, and, and be, be the housewife. Uh, he, he seems to be fairly persistent in wanting her to either pursue uh, a law degree or at least help him in his office, work with him, um, use the degree that she's got and do something other than be this freewheeling uh, jazz bunny that uh, is what she appears to be, at least for the first couple of issues. Yeah, uh, Larry's an interesting character. Uh, we can talk more about him as we go because he, he's, he comes off as someone who is, uh, he, he has her best interests at heart and he is somewhat progressive, but he's also, you know, he has to sort of get past his own prejudices from just being someone that, you know, grew up in the 1800s and is now, you know. Um, well, and he's an elected official in, uh, in New York City in, in the 1930s. He's, there's a certain social prestige that uh, um, having a, a daughter that's a little too wild or a little too out unconventional is, is going to be a problem. So he's constrained there, but he is, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, fairly progressive, uh, at least in that he wants her to do something um, that he knows she's intellectually capable of doing. Yeah. So one thing you mentioned there that's, that I think is important is when we see her at the beginning of this story, she's going off with her friends to these jazz clubs in Harlem. She's mingling with people of other races, and he's worried that he doesn't want her to get a bad reputation. He also doesn't want her to give him a bad reputation, but she is she's breaking these sort of social conventions and mingling with people that like her as a woman um, don't have the same opportunities. And uh, one thing I think, reason I think it's important is because we see this a lot in the next arc um, where, where uh, there's um, a guy who's a Chinese American. She has a relationship with him. A lot of that story, which is like a Chinatown mystery about the Tongs fighting, turns out some of that is driven by um, there's a there's a prominent character in this arc who's a Chinese American, but he he's kind of trying to pass in white society, and that's driving a lot of this. And I think it's an interesting parallel um, with Diane. Again, she's she's one thing that he that he does as a writer, which which we see a lot. It's a great it's a classic sort of writing thing to do. But in a lot of these arcs the characters that they're dealing with who are involved, either the victims or the killers or whoever, they're, they are created as mirrors to Diane and Wes and usually more Diane than Wes. There's a lot of times in a lot of these arcs where, where Diane learns things about herself um, because she's interacting with people who are in some sort of mirror situation to her and then she sees how their decisions affect them negatively most of the time sometimes positively and so there's a lot of different mirrors and i think um her the guy she gets in a relationship with here and they end up breaking it off and in a way he, his experience where um his family expectations and the societal expectations sort of crush him um, it is a, an important lesson and mirror for her. Um, speaking, I mean, without jumping ahead to the next arc, um, unless we need to, that did the, the raise uh, a thought that I had um, that I noted simply with regard to the first arc. The coloring um, in the first arc is actually, I, I thought was excellent. Um, to the point that I made a note of it, um, David Hornung uh, was the colorist um, 
and I don't, I don't follow colorists for the most part. It's, it's another, other than Marie Severin, um, that's a, kind of a blind spot for me. Um, but the colors in the first issue, um, I thought were excellent, very evocative of the time period uh, and added a lot to the book. Now, in the second arc, they become somewhat problematic for a reason that we can talk about later on. But uh, yeah, I did we... note that uh, the, the, I thought the coloring was outstanding, particularly in those first early, early oh. issues. And this is a time when, when frankly, DC was still having some problems with their coloring. Yeah, so I mean, DC had a lot of problems in the 80s, particularly for me when they're trying to move to the Baxter paper. So they get this bright white paper and their coloring is just like, it just suddenly be, you know, because of the, they haven't adjusted anything for the paper quality, it's like this neon and there's all these weird shades that people and backgrounds are not supposed to be. You're right, the coloring in the first arc, we could talk about the second arc now since I've sort of jumped into it. Um, here's the cover for the first part. It's called The Face. This is part one of four. And um, we'll talk, I also want to talk about the cover design in a second, but um, yeah, so there's a lot of Chinese American characters and Chinese characters in this arc. The coloring, it's not Guy Davis on art. So we get two arcs in a row here, both the face and the following arc, the brute, where there's a different artist. So, which is kind of interesting because Guy Davis, when you when you get through the whole run, he's clearly the regular artist, but he only does one of the first three arcs. So you get into issue 12, he's only done the first four issues. Now we yeah. get these two other artists. It's not clear at this point if in time that he's going to become the regular artist and come back. Thank goodness he does. The art's okay in these stories, but this this one in particular, the coloring gets way off. The the Chinese characters and the Chinese American characters are colored with this yellow coloring. Just terribly yellow, yeah. And uh, they ended up um, writing in the letter column an apology for the coloring, basically saying that they didn't intend it to look like that. And then when it was printed, it, it just looked a lot more yellow than they planned. I don't know how true that is, but knowing how badly they were messing up coloring on some of the other books, I can believe that it was just a matter of production incompetence. Yeah, I, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, but yeah, the coloring in particularly in issue number five is just incredibly problematic. Um, just bright yellow um, Chinese characters that are, are way out of control. Um, I didn't love uh, the art in 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 this storyline, um, it's uh, John Watkiss, and I don't. I know at one point I looked up what else he'd done. I don't recall off the top. I obviously didn't write it down, um, but uh, so I'm not very familiar with his work. Um, I think the next. Well, we can get to that, but I, I didn't love the the uh, the the artwork and the coloring was a problem. But it, it was kind of jarring to go from Guy Davis um, to yeah. John Watkins. To me, that was. I think the art by itself is is okay, but when you've just read the Guy Davis art in the first arc and you come to this, it really suffers in comparison because Guy Davis's art is just. Um, for, for people that are used to superhero art, I think Guy Davis's art might be a, a real acquired taste. I think it would be surprised, like, it's not necessarily going to immediately uh, make sense. But once you start getting into it, it's just great and it's just much better than the art in here in this second I, I arc. Think, I think if you were just coming strictly from a superhero background, especially at the time, Guy Davis probably would have been jarring. Um, I had moved largely away from superheroes and was had been reading Sandman, had been reading um, um, Doom Patrol, some other proto-Vertigo books. So I, I was not, had, had distanced myself enough from the superhero, straight superhero art that uh, Guy Davis um, didn't jump out at me as being anything other than exceptionally good. Um, Watkiss, on the other hand, I, it's a very angular uh, 
the art's very angular and it was just just enough different than than Davis that it didn't work for me very well at all. Yeah, and one thing Guy Davis's art is definitely not as angular in any way at all. So uh, it was very different. Um, so let's one, before we jump to the next arc, I have a lot of things to say about the next arc. For me, the next arc is where thematically and stuff things really start taking off. Um, but let's talk about the cover design a little bit. So one thing that's interesting about the covers for the whole series is that they're almost all are all photo covers. Um, yeah. So here's issue six, sorry for the glare. Um, they also do some different things um, with the the graphic design. So like we're seeing the logo over here, like on the side, um, like, the, and they move the logo around, they changed like the, sometimes it's straight across, sometimes it's bunched in the square, sometimes at a different place on the cover, sometimes they have other elements um, we'll really talk about that. Uh, there's some really cool cover designs later on in the series, the Blackhawk storyline where they're like movie posters and there's this. The Hour Man storyline I think really jumped out at me as one I remember. Yeah, I really like the arc about the um, comic book industry where the covers suddenly look like they're, they're 40s DC. Um, so the covers um, really jump out um, off the stands. I don't I don't always love them. Like, uh, I don't always love the photos. Um, I prefer drawn covers in general to photo covers. I, I so I, I have mixed feelings about them because a, a lot of cases I really love the design of the cover, but I would have preferred to have someone draw it instead of a photo, but it definitely makes them stand out. And I do think it helps in some ways. Uh, maybe you can agree or disagree with me on this one. I'm not sure. Um, in terms of making it feel like a pulp stuff now that what do you think about that I think it look, makes it look a little older um, and and thematically I wonder if maybe they were trying to um, tie into some of those initial Sandman covers that were part photograph and, and part uh, painting by uh, Dave McKean uh, a lot of those covers, or particularly in the early Sandman covers, um, McKean would would draw paint, and then also have um, a collage of just artifacts, knickknacks, different things along the cover. I, I wonder if maybe they were going for trying to tie into that aesthetic. Maybe they weren't. Well, one thing a lot um, of the covers do that it with the they'll have sort of these creepy close-ups and a lot of like blurring and stuff. And so they, they do in a way sort of replicate the dream aspect. So like the, the, the dreams that the West is getting in the stories, um, a lot of times the covers are sort of like this one here, for instance, it's, yeah. it's very sort of nightmare, like uh, the sort of like the fisheye and that things are out of focus. Um, uh, so I do think that's part of what they're going for as well is sort of this sort of this creepy nightmare theater sort of sort of feel of things. Um, two quick things that I did note, um, and we touched on one of them. Uh, I, I noted as I was like doing some research when I was doing my most recent reread, uh, there were Wagner both in, in, in both of the first arcs pulled elements um, from the original Sandman stories. Not many elements, but some elements. The face apparently was some sort of a Sandman villain that appeared in Adventure number 44. Now, I've never read that. I'm guessing that there's very little similarity other than uh, the fact that they um, have the same name. Uh, there was some, apparently some sort of uh, connection between the villain in the first um, arc and uh, a villain in adventure number 40. So I thought that was interesting that at least he was cribbing a little bit to, to the old, very old series. Uh, the other thing that I think is actually very important, and, and you touched on this earlier, uh, we find out in this arc that uh, 
Diane had a dating, at least dating, probably an intimate relationship with uh, Jimmy Shan, who is uh, the Chinese uh, gentleman who, around whom, at least partially, the the storyline revolves. Um, and that's, uh, I, I think that's a, a good insight into Diane's character because that's incredibly daring for a, really an upper class white educated uh, New Yorker to be dating um, and publicly dating a, a Chinese uh, gentleman uh, in 1939. Yeah, it is, and if I remember correctly, they they have a, like a sort of an argument in the story about um, where he feels that she might be sort of like just uh, having like a, sort of using him as sort of like a sort of like a appeasing like, her liberal white guilt syndrome. Yeah, so um, it does come up, but it is it is an important insight into. Diane's character. Um, we're going to get a lot of stuff about Diane's character in the next arc. One thing that's interesting, last thing about this arc I want to mention is that in the first arc, Wes provides the voiceover, the narration boxes. Um, but even though that's the case, the story is still from Diane's point of view. In this arc, the story's from Diane's point of view, and Diane is also doing the narration boxes, so it's very heavily about Diane, and so we again have, even more so than the first arc, a situation where Sandman is a secondary character in his own, in his own title. Very much um, so, yeah. That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'd like to thank my guest, Slam Bradley. Next time we'll be back picking right up where we left off with the third arc in issue number nine. And next time you also get to hear my secret special theory about the series that I've been keeping to myself for years here, just waiting for the opportunity to unload it on an unsuspecting world. So I hope you're my was I dropped the bombshell of what my big theory is about this series. Uh, and I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, you can always join us at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation and hopefully we'll see you next time. So until then, thanks very much. Mm-hmm.